Uh, so I told you when we started the service, this will be uh, the longest uh, section of Scripture we'll have ever gone through, four chapters. So basically the whole service is just going to be me reading four chapters of Scripture for us. It's not what I'm doing. <laughs> not what I'm doing. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 7 of Exodus, the very last verse of chapter uh, 11, uh, and then the very last verse of chapter 14. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Chapter 11, verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 14, verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so um, not knowing how to deliver this too well, I guess, you know, start out kind of like telling you a joke. Uh, so what do Jen Hatmaker, Rob Bell, Joshua Harris, Derek Webb, Michael Gunger, Marty Sampson, and Bart Ehrman all have in common? They're no longer Christians. <laughs> Did a ch no, uh, that's really bad. Uh, but... All right, so I, I, I named off, you know, seven people. And in reality, if you were to actually break it down, uh, those seven people, at one point in time within the last 20 years, they've actually been uh, really, really influential uh, Christian ministers in some way, shape, or form. Uh, at least one of them is a seminary professor, a very, very well-known, published seminary professor. Uh, a number of them are Christian musicians. Two of them uh, at one time were Christian pastors. For many, many years, they led so many people uh, to the Lord. They talked about the good news of Jesus Christ and how they can find hope in Him. But then slowly but surely, for some of them, it was intellectual objections to the faith. For some of them, uh, it was emotional objections. And for some of them, frankly, they just wanted to get away with what they wanted to get away with. They walked away from the faith. Uh, there's a real kind of, you know, popular term uh, that these guys and many, many others, for those who at one time would have identified themselves as a Christian who no longer uh, believe in Orthodox Christianity, maybe the faith that they held to at one time, uh, they describe their experience as a deconversion experience. And one of the things that's really interesting about uh, these Christian, former Christian pastors and artists and uh, great intellectual thinkers is they're actually not done with their mission. 
You see, when they were Christians, they believed it was their job to convert those who weren't Christians to Christianity. And then now that they are no longer Christians, uh, they continue to believe that it is their job to persuade those why Christians are wrong. There's another one, and it's somewhat ironic uh, given the content of his rebuke, but I'm going to read it to all of us here in a second. Uh, His name is John Cooper. Now, John Cooper has not walked away from the faith. John Cooper, uh, he's the lead singer of the band Skillet. But in response to so many of these people walking away from the faith, and let's be honest, I don't know if it's actually more uh, common today than it ever has been throughout the history of Christianity. I think it's just a little more publicized because of social media and uh, technology that we have today. But anyways, John Cooper he wrote this kind of scathing letter to so many of those who uh, have been walking away from Christianity. And some of it I agree with, some of it I don't agree with, but there's at least two points he makes in this letter that I do want to read for us, because I think he he really captures uh, so much of what the problem is. So bear with me one moment. I'm going to read to you again two points that John Cooper makes, um, makes in his letter to those who have recently deconverted. There is a common thread running through these leaders, influencers, that basically says no one else is talking about the real stuff. This is just flatly false. I just read today in a renowned worship leader's statement, how could a God of love send people to hell? No one talks about it. As if he was the first person to ask this? Brother, you are not that unique. The church has wrestled with this for 1,500 years. Literally, everybody talks about it. Children talk about it in Sunday school classes. There's like a billion books written on this topic. Just because you don't get the answer you want doesn't mean that we are unwilling to wrestle with it. We wrestle with Scripture until we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. It is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the Word and to value the teaching of the Word. We need to value truth over feeling, truth over emotion, and what we are seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth, who have led a generation who also do not believe in the supremacy of truth. And now, those disavowed leaders are proudly still leading and influencing boldly away from the truth. John Cooper. Again, what he had to say, um, somewhat scathing, but I feel like he captures so much of, of, I guess, what we could call this resurgence, uh, this strong wave of people who at one time said they believe, but now own this identity of unbelief. I cannot look at Jesus and say that in any way, shape, or form uh, that I know how to define the term that I can be considered a Christian. I look at these stories, and actually at least one of the people that I named, I know somewhat personally. Uh, It's one of those times where you call somebody a friend who you know a little bit more than just Facebook. Um, And I've wept over some of them, and I've prayed for every single one of them, that God would restore them, that God would convict them, that God would bring them back to the faith. But here's the thing. I actually think uh, sometimes, if we're really honest, There's plenty of things that we have in common with all of uh, these people that have walked away from the faith. 
You see, I believe that each and every single one of us, we struggle with doubts in some way, shape, or form. Not that that's a sinful thing. It truly is not. But I think if we really pressed in, that we all struggle with unbelief in some way, shape, or form. Maybe we don't struggle believing God is real. Maybe we can buy into that. But we do struggle that God can forgive me. Or if we don't struggle believing that God can forgive me, we certainly cannot believe that God would forgive them. Perhaps we don't believe God is a God of love. Maybe we believe that God is all-powerful, but when we look at the world around us and see the suffering that is present in the lives of His creation, certainly He can't be good. Whatever shape your unbelief takes, uh, and again, uh, I count myself amongst those who struggle with belief. When we look at uh, the miraculous events, the supernatural events uh, of the plagues that we see in Exodus chapter 7 through 11, I think the one takeaway, the big takeaway that the people of God back then were to walk away with and that you and I even this evening were to walk away with, it's a simple statement, and I believe it's as simple as this. God wants us to believe in Him. God wants us to believe in Him. This evening, we're going to unpack that by looking at two points. We're going to be looking at the power of unbelief, and we're going to be looking at the power of God. The power of unbelief and the power of God. Those are our two points this evening. All right, so this first point, the power of unbelief. Uh, In many ways, shape, and form, I think if we were to uh, try to say, hey, is there a character in Scripture that really personifies, that really captures what does it mean uh, to not believe in God? What does it mean to practice unbelief? I think Pharaoh certainly should be in our top probably three picks uh, for someone who no matter what evidence is presented before him, no matter what is going on, he persists in his unbelief. He will not recognize God as God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I do remember some of the first times I read through uh, the Exodus story, and then likewise in the New Testament, uh, in Romans chapter 9 is what I'm thinking in particular, there's this uh, refrain that's repeated a, a few times. Even in the Scripture, I didn't read all of it tonight, obviously, in the four chapters, but even tonight, I made sure it was in there at least twice. There's this statement that says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, therefore Pharaoh doesn't repent. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, therefore Pharaoh doesn't let his people go. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I know when I read that the first time, like uh, instinctually, the question that I go to is, well, wait a minute, if God hardens Pharaoh's heart, It sounds like God is the main actor here. It sounds like God is the one that is uh, pushing in on the outside and in some way, and I don't know if I could tell you how, but it sounds like he is uh, making Pharaoh choose to do these bad things. So how could God uh, possibly hold Pharaoh accountable to his actions? So I want to take a moment and actually let's let's talk about this for a second. What does the Scripture mean when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart? So the first thing we got to get clear is in those four chapters, uh, 7 through 11, there's actually three statements in regards to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. A little more than half, not quite two-thirds, a little more than half the time, it makes it abundantly and explicitly clear, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So we've already talked about that. 
But then there's about another third of the time, so still pretty significant, where it says Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's almost like they're being used synonymously. And then it's used even less, but nonetheless, it still is in there uh, in the four chapters. It just says simply Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So we have these three sentences, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. How can we make sense of that? All right, so here we go. Uh, when we look at the Hebrew words that are being used here, there's pretty much three words that are relatively synonymous. Uh, it's the Hebrew word hazak, kazah, and uh, kabed. If you know Hebrew, I'm really sorry for my butcher of the pronunciation. So, e again, each of those words nearly synonymously and essentially, the definition, like what we get when we read those words, uh, it's to strengthen, it's to solidify, or it's to reassure of a conviction. To strengthen, to solidify, to reassure of a conviction. So, uh, elsewhere where we see these words in the Old Testament, there's plenty of times where God actually reaches out to His people, and He's calling His people to repent, uh, and God doesn't mean this in a derogatory sense. I think uh, He means it as, as literally as He can. He describes His people as stiff-necked. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Repent, you stiff-necked people. Uh, other places, He'll say, repent, you stubborn people. And it's using a combination, or again, some mixture of these words, hazak, kazah, and kabed. So again, when you and I, when, when we read this, I think naturally, uh, we do kind of ask that question. Well, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you know, how could Pharaoh be responsible? But in reality, if we're actually cooperating with what the language is getting at here, here's what God is actually doing. He is strengthening or fortifying what is already in Pharaoh's heart. See what it comes down to? We could look back to the beginning of Exodus where there was a different Pharaoh, and we can see the prejudice that already existed amongst the Egyptians towards the people of God. We know that the current Pharaoh that, that is happening here in Exodus uh, chapter 7 through 11, he inherited so much of these prejudices. But again, at some point, he made a decision to rebel again and again and again. And he was so firm in his conviction. He was so firm that, uh, in his beliefs that what he was doing was actually right. What he was doing was actually for the greater good. That his heart became hard. When the Scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he just helped Pharaoh a little bit along believe what you already believe. And then we see it. We see that Pharaoh's heart is hardened because no matter what God does through both Aaron and Moses, we see this kind of deceptive and manipulative character continues to unfold. You see, let me make sure I get this number right, uh, in six of the plagues, um, especially if you count the death of the firstborn, so at least five of the plagues if you don't count the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh will actually kind of begin to cooperate with the process. So God will say, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Uh, then Moses or Aaron will say, okay, if you don't, God is going to bring this judgment, this plague down on you. And Pharaoh says, you know, bring it on. 
And then Pharaoh and the Egyptians begin to struggle uh, under these plagues. And then Pharaoh will often go to Moses or Aaron and say, hey, talk to God for me on my behalf. Tell God I said that I'm sorry. Please relent of what you are doing. Then Moses and Aaron will do this. And the second, the consequences begin to go away from Pharaoh's actions, he immediately goes right back to it. You see, again, he, he begins to try to say, yeah, I'm going to cooperate. Yeah, I'm going to repent. Yeah, I'm going to believe and follow the Lord. But then the second that the pressure is not on, we see what's actually in his heart. He's not actually sorry for what he's done. He's not sorry for what he believes. He's sorry that he's experiencing the consequences for it, if that. He has this false repentance that shows how hard his heart root truly is. And then the other thing I think that we see again and again, uh, the way that Pharaoh interacts with both Moses and Aaron, uh, the fact that he refuses to believe that God is God, I think one of the ways that it's evident is, is in his continued negotiating. You see, eventually he gets to the point where he says, okay, okay, listen, you guys want to go out in the wilderness and worship? Sure, I'll take the men and go out for three days. Moses says, no, man. You know, this is not what God has said. We all got to go. And then the pattern will continue. And Pharaoh will eventually say, all right, take the men and the women and you guys go. And Moses is saying, that is not what God has put on the table. Don't you understand? You're not calling the shots here. No, it needs to be all of us. Then Pharaoh says, fine, take the men, the women, and the children, but leave all that you have behind and go. And Moses again and again, this is not how this is going to work. God is God. He calls the shots, not you, until he'll experience uh, the second the second greatest consequence for his sin. Uh, first, it's going to be the death of his son that really gets his attention, and then it will be his own death. Both in Pharaoh's constant false repentance, both in his continue uh, negotiating after the fact, I think it reveals what is truly inside his heart. So again, it's not so much a matter of God uh, hardening Pharaoh's heart as God making Pharaoh more assured of what is already in there. I say this very jokingly because I'm going to use a very um, simplistic illustration for some of this that doesn't get to... um, the heaviness that I think we experience here. But, but again, I was told time and time again, you do not need to teach your children how to sin. It will come so naturally to them. Uh, it's not something that's hard. And one of the things that we've realized lately is about our daughter. She herself uh, struggles with this idea of who is in charge. My daughter herself has a hard heart. Uh, so typically, how this has been going for us lately, um, after... Halloween. Uh, Charlie had a a bag full of candy, and we want to be good parents and and certainly uh, mediate how much candy she gets and when she gets to uh, have it. And so lately, she's been playing uh, that old manipulating game. So first, she'll come up to me and say, you know, uh, Daddy, can I have a piece of candy? And if I say no, who does she go to next? immediately to mommy. Mommy, can I have a piece of candy? And so now we're trying to teach her, hey, mom and dad, we're on the same team here. On the few times where we say, okay, honey, you know, we love you, and certainly we don't want to be mean to you. Sure, you could have a piece of candy. Uh, She immediately comes back with, I'm going to have three pieces of candy. 
No, Charlie, you can have one piece of candy. We'll help you get it. Okay, fine. How about two pieces of candy? No, Charlie, you don't get to negotiate with us as we're talking here. We're your parents. We're calling the shots. There's no negotiating with God. God is God. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He calls the shots. But oftentimes in our own belief, and I think in our own hard hearts, we want to negotiate with him, do we not? I'll repent of this next time. Uh, I, won't, I won't ever do this again, God. Please just let there not be consequences for me this time. Uh, God, I just do not have it in me right now uh, to forgive, and I'm just, I'm not going to do this. I don't have it. Uh, sin is sin, you know, but this isn't that big of a deal. You don't actually care about this too much, do you, God? Can you see all those subtle ways where just like a child to a parent, uh, we try to negotiate with God? God will say something is important, and it matters in our lives, but again, we struggle with this, do we not? And I would say this struggle, this negotiating, uh, this maybe going back as soon as uh, we no longer are experiencing consequences, it's our own way that just like Pharaoh, we true, we too struggle with unbelief. And I think the thing that we're to learn when we look at the power of unbelief we need to know, guys, unbelief is real. It's tempting. And when we look at Pharaoh, we should see this as, a, frankly, a great warning. We don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know how, but there was a point where Pharaoh crossed the line of no return. He had hardened his heart so far that he wasn't going to go back. He became so uh, persistent in what he was doing, so persistent in his rebellion against the Lord, he couldn't even want the Lord anymore. Pharaoh should serve as a model that shows us, hey, even with the greatest evidence that likely any human being in the world has ever experienced, we can still have unbelief. How oftentimes do we say, if God would just make himself known, then I would believe but when we look at Pharaoh, we see how manipulative and how powerful unbelief is. May we repent of our unbelief. May we look to God and recognize that He alone is God. And may we believe in Him. It's the power of unbelief. We should be weary of it, we should be fearful of it, and we should repent of the unbelief that we have. Now let's look at the power of God. By far, uh, far greater, far more powerful, far more significant do we see in Exodus chapter 7 through 11, the power of God. So there's pretty much two ways we're going to look at the, the way we see God's power here in this text. First, we're going to see God's power uh, against the Egyptian pantheon, and then we're going to see God's power uh, in creation. And that sounds a little bizarre for a second, but it will make more sense here in a second. So, uh, I'm going to go through a lot of details. I'm going to go through them quick. Know you're getting a 35-minute sermon on four chapters of Scripture. So, uh, bear with me on this uh, as I try to move pretty quick. So, Numbers chapter 33, verse 4. Uh, it makes it abundantly clear that one of the reasons for the plagues, the ten plagues that God uh, casts against Egypt, was to show His judgment against uh, the gods of Egypt. 
Again, the people, not just the Egyptians, mind you, but the Israelites themselves, they for so long have been worshiping these gods. They believe that life and power and and blessing and everything that they have come from these Egyptian gods. And then Yahweh shows up and says, no, they are not real. There is one God, and I am Him. Will you know me? Will you worship me? Will you follow me? And then he shows his power by showing how impotent the gods of Egypt are. When God uh, judges uh, the Nile River and turns into blood, he's judging the Egyptian god Happy, who is the god of the Nile. When God brings frogs out of the waters of Egypt, he judges the Egyptian god Heket, who is the god of childbirth, represented as a frog. When God brings in pestilence and kills all of the animals in Egypt, he judges the Egyptian god Hathor, who is the mother and sky goddess, represented as a cow. When God brings this great storm and uh, these, uh, these massive hail come down and destroy much of the cities of Egypt, he judges the Egyptian god Seth, who is god of skies and storms. When he brings in the locusts that eat all of the vegetation in Egypt, he judges the god Min, who is the god of fertility, crops, and the harvest. When he brings darkness, tangible darkness, over the entire land of Egypt, he judges uh, the god Ra and the god Horus, who are both related uh, to the sun. And then finally, in the tenth and worst of all the plagues, the death of the firstborn child, He judges uh, the king of all of the Egyptian gods, Osiris, who supposedly was the one who had the power over life and death. Now, we skipped over a few plagues, and we can't make all of them fit exactly perfectly, especially when we kind of start looking at, say, some of the, the, the boils and the flies. Uh, but nonetheless, we do see, as Numbers says, uh, one of the reasons for the plagues is to show the Egyptians and the Israelites, hey, these gods that you have been worshiping, these gods that you have been trusting, they're not actually gods. Look at by my word and my word alone how I can undo them. Look at these acts and these wonders and believe Uh, This is incredible. So, uh, again, what I'm trying to say to you here is one of the the main reasons for the plagues uh, is so that God would demonstrate his power so that the Egyptians would come to know and the Israelites would come to know who the true God is. So, uh, I found this out, and um, I'm going to kind of tuck it in here, but it's actually incredible. So, before the time of the Exodus, we're going into different uh, archaeology digs now, uh, in ancient tombs of Egyptians and on some sarcophagi, I believe I've said that correct, there was this old hymn that they referred to as the cannibal hymn. And there was this writing, and it was essentially this. It said, it is the king who will be judged with him whose name is hidden on that day of the slaying of the firstborn. All right, so let me make sense of that. Years before God would come in, years before the exodus, years before the death of the firstborn, there was this uh, hymn, there was this prophecy amongst Egypt saying, hey, the God that we don't know who his name is is going to judge the king by the death of the firstborn. 
And then we see this happen. Again, this is Egyptian literature. God goes out of his way to make himself known to pagans. This is exactly what he does in Acts 17 uh, to the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, Paul, as he's preaching, he says, listen, the God that you worship, the, the, the God who has no name, let me tell you his name. His name is Jesus. To the Egyptians, hey, the God that you don't know his name yet, he's actually the real God. Believe in him. Trust in him. God shows that he is God over and against the Egyptian pantheon. But then here we go. I think maybe even um, probably the more significant thing that we should pick up, and, and again, I have my MDiv. I've studied Exodus before, but it wasn't until this week that I found this resource. But there's no denying this was part of the intent of both God and Moses uh, as he wrote the book of Exodus for us. You see, God is showing that he is the God over all creation in the way uh, that he brings the plagues about. So again, Moses, uh, the first book that he would have written is the book of Exodus. But then while he and the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, he'll go on to write the rest of the Pentateuch, the book of Genesis being one of those. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, it describes the creation account, how God made everything out of nothing in the span of six days. And if we look at the way uh, the days of creation are described and the plagues against Egypt, we see in creation, God brings order to chaos. In uh, the plagues and His judgment, God brings chaos to order. You see, and I'm about to unpack all that here for us in just one second, but one of the things that the Egyptians believed, one of the things that we too often believe and we struggle with, they were the most powerful empire. They were the most powerful kingdom in the world. They had the, most, uh, the greatest economy. They had the most trade. They had the most powerful army. Uh, they had everything. They were the world's superpower at that time. And we all know when you have made your own way, how seductive that lie can be to believe, ah, everything that I have, it's because I've worked hard for it. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Look what I have delivered to myself. And God shows them, everything that you have comes from me. Recognize that I am God. In day two and three of creation, God divides and orders the water. In the first plague that he sends to the Egyptians, God changes all of their water, not just the Nile, into blood. In day three of creation, God creates vegetation, which is called forth from the earth. In the plague of uh, the locusts, uh, all vegetation is destroyed from the land of Egypt when the locusts come in and remove all of it. In day five of creation, God creates creatures to populate the waters and the skies. In both the plague of the frogs and then the plague of the gnats and flies, uh, the frogs proceed from the water and fill the entire land of Egypt. The gnats and the flies, they bring disease and sickness as they come from the skies. Day six, God creates the creatures to populate the land, the livestock, the plague of pestilence destroys uh, all living creatures in the land. On day one and four of creation, God creates light and separates it from darkness. But in the ninth plague, uh, 
God brings darkness over the land of Egypt. The plague of boils is the one where maybe we have a little bit of a hard time. But again, if God is showing that He is the God over creation, you see it's on day six that He creates man. And it's on day six where He says, I make man in my image. What is one of the fundamental uh, false teachings and beliefs that the Egyptians had buy into? That they are the superior race. That they are superior to all the other nations around them. Uh, They look at the Hebrews and the other surrounding nations and they believe they are better than them. So God brings them a plague of boils to show no, um, mankind is made in my image and they're all significant. Do not think of yourself more highly. And then finally... On day six, we know that it is God is, is the one who brings life to his people. And in the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, God takes life. Uh, the plagues of Egypt, in some ways, it is an undoing of creation. This Old Testament scholar, he described it like this. At the end of the narrative in Exodus, Israel looks back over the stilled water of the sea at a land with no people, no animals, and no vegetation, a land in which creation had been undone. Israel is convinced that her Redeemer is the Lord of all creation. It is this implicit theological principle that motivated the explicit creation of the literary pattern. He, who had just reduced order to chaos, was the same God who had previously ordered the chaos. The power of God is on full display in the Old Testament, arguably in no greater place in the Old Testament than in the story of the Exodus. He shows that the pantheon of Egyptian gods are impotent and have nothing on him. He shows that the Egyptians who believe uh, they are self-sustaining, self-made nation, the most powerful nation in all of the world, shows that by the word of God, uh, all order that they brought to their world, to their life, can be undone like that. It is this God, the all-powerful God, who is Israel's Redeemer. It is this God, the all-powerful God, uh, as we learned last week, His name is Yahweh. This God fights for what is precious for Him. If the Exodus, uh, frankly, is the, the grandest display of God's power in the Old Testament, then the grandest display of the power of God uh, in all of history does not come from the Old Testament in the Exodus, but the grandest display of the power of God is actually shown to us. It's shown to you and I on the cross of Jesus Christ. You see in the Old Testament to display his power. The text that we read tells us that God reached out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with signs and wonders, he showed his divine power. You see, at the cross, rather than reaching out with his hand to judge his people, he spreads his arms to be pierced and destroyed that he may receive all of the judgment that his people deserve for the way that they don't believe in him. You see, the grandest, the most powerful display of God's power, again, it's not the exodus, it's not the mighty hand and the outstretched arms, but the grandest display of God's power, it's his weakness. He shows us his ultimate power, and that he is willing to lay down his life for those 
whom he loves. The main thing I believe that we're supposed to learn in Exodus 7 through 11, the story of the plagues, is that we are called to believe in God. Throughout the Gospels, we'll see that Jesus, he'll ask this question, he'll repeat this refrain, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, I'm sure, but I believe that the most important question that every man, woman, and child that we will ever answer is this, the same question Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? You see, when I say that God wants us to believe in him, it's one thing to acknowledge that he is El Shaddai, that he is God Almighty. In fact, if we read in the New Testament, there's actually a warning against that. You say you believe in God, well done. The demons believe in his name and they fear and they shudder. You see, our belief is to be so much more than just simply an intellectual assent and an acknowledgement, sure, that he is God. No, but our belief is to look at the cross. Our belief is to recognize that he is worthy. Our belief is to come in the shape of us following him, not just an intellectual assent, but our belief looks like us trusting him, and even though we struggle, even though it is hard, we follow him. I think one of the most uh, bold and honest uh, and incredible affirmations of faith that comes in the New Testament, and uh, I'm saying this off the fly, so off the top of my head, I don't have the reference memorized, but uh, a man comes and he asks Jesus to heal his child, and Jesus says, you know, oh, wicked nation, how many times, you know, look at the unbelief that's around me. And the man looks back at Jesus, and he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe that each of us, in our own ways, we struggle with unbelief. May our cry, may our prayer, in response to the power of God, may it be simply that, Lord, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? In Jesus' will. Let's pray.